This episode is brought to you by The Big Leap, Fox's new drama about second chances and following your dreams. Premiering Monday at 9, 8 central on Fox. Welcome to Skim This. We're kicking things off this week with our interview with Dr. Fauci, where we cover everything from the new vaccine mandates to booster shots to his biggest pandemic mistake. Then we'll bring you the non-COVID headlines, including what happened with California's recall election, why America's highest ranking military officer is in hot water, and what the kids are up to these days. Hint, it's not drinking alcohol. Then we'll look into the state of legal challenges to that restrictive new abortion law in Texas, including one that's pretty unexpected. Plus, why the latest reports about Facebook show the tech giant is still the tech world's number one villain. And to end the show, we'll look at the chillest new prescription some doctors are starting to write. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Last week, we got a pretty interesting call. Well, technically it was an email, but it was from Dr. Fauci's team, letting us know the doctor had a few free minutes to answer our most burning COVID questions. Dr. Anthony Fauci is known as America's top infectious disease doctor, and he's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's also become an internet sensation, a magazine cover star, and he basically makes news with almost everything he says. Before we get into our interview with Dr. Fauci, we wanted to say we know a lot of us are feeling some serious COVID fatigue. And don't worry, the rest of the show is full of other stories from around the world. But given the federal vaccine mandate announcement from last week, which could impact two-thirds of American workers, plus the FDA's meeting this week to talk about whether we need boosters, and the sad new data point that one in 500 Americans has died because of this pandemic, we wanted to play this interview first. All right, let's hop on that Zoom. Dr. Fauci, the president announced new vaccine mandates for federal workers and large companies. Why take such a sweeping and rigid approach? Well, I would say it's sweeping, but I don't think it's rigid. (laughs) There's no doubt that the solution to the very difficult situation that we are in and have been now for well over a year and a half The solution that we have at our hands is vaccines. They are highly effective and safe. We can get out of this by the overwhelming majority of the population getting vaccinated. We've tried everything. We've made the vaccines readily available, safe, free, and they work. We've gotten trusted messengers out there to convince people to get vaccinated. Yet, There are about 75 million people in this country who are eligible to be vaccinated who have not gotten vaccinated. This is turned into a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Now, we don't want to see people suffer just because they didn't want to get vaccinated, but it also spills over to the vaccinated people because if you have so many people spreading the virus, we're not going to get back to the normal that we all crave. And the only way you get out of that is by getting people vaccinated. And if that means mandating vaccines for some people, then so be it. We may have to go that route. And that's what the president decided. And I actually was very much in favor of that myself. What would you say to people who think these mandates are government overreach? 
I would say that it's not. <laughs> and that's the reason why I just explained it the way I did. It's overreach when you do it without giving the opportunity of an individual to voluntarily do something that's quite appropriate. But when you're in almost a, a desperate situation, we've got to get the numbers down, Alex. There have been 650,000 deaths of people in the United States. This is a public health crisis. And sometimes crises require unusual actions. And that's the reason why I pushed back when you said it's overreaching or it's drastic or whatever it is that you said it was. I don't think it is. I think it's commensurate with the seriousness of the problem. If we follow through on these mandates, does that get us to herd immunity? And if so, when are we talking? Well, if we get the overwhelming proportion of the population vaccinated, Alex, we will get to herd immunity. We will. There's no doubt about that. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We've got to do much, much better. And you ask when that will happen? It will happen when we do it. If we do it in the next six months, it will happen in the next six months. If we do it in the next two months, it'll happen in the next two months. Do you anticipate it being in the next six months? I would hope so. I think we've had enough of this particular virus. Unfortunately, the virus hasn't had enough of us. So we've got to turn the tables on it. Dr. Fauci, I'm curious if you would support vaccine mandates for the following things. Would you support a vaccine mandate for airline travel? Well, you know, what I would support doesn't necessarily mean it would happen. I would. So I would support that if you want to get on a plane and travel with other people, that you should be vaccinated. Would you support vaccine mandates for public schools? Certainly, as long as the person is eligible to be vaccinated. Now, I want to maybe amplify a bit on that question, Alex, because when you hear us say, should you mandate vaccination for children to be able to attend school, some people say, oh my goodness, that would be terrible to do that. But we already do that and have been doing that for decades and decades and decades. I don't know what school you went to, but the school that I went to, you had to be vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella, polio, or otherwise you couldn't go to school. So it is not something new to mandate vaccines for school children. What about a countrywide vaccine passport? Well, you know, the answer is optimally that would be a good thing, but there would be so much pushback on that because it would be that you're discriminating against people who are not vaccinated. But, you know, there are local enterprises that are requiring it. In New York City, you're in New York City, aren't you? Yeah. I am. Yeah. You, you're not going to get into most uh, restaurants unless you show you're vaccinated. So. You are living the dream in New York City. <laughs> I'd like to think so. I'm curious, what's the biggest mistake in your mind that you think you've made since the start of the pandemic? It depends on how you define a mistake. If I knew what I know now in the very, very beginning, when there was under the radar screen spread of the virus and we didn't realize it, I would have recommended being much more aggressive in every way, in shutdowns and masks and everything else, because it was spreading. We didn't realize that it spread asymptomatically so easily. 
What's a vaccine myth you're tired of hearing about? I'm tired of hearing about that Bill Gates and I put a chip in the vaccine and we're going to follow you around and just control your thoughts. What's one thing you would say to pregnant women who are hesitant to get vaccinated? Please get vaccinated because getting COVID-19 when you're pregnant could be devastating to you and to your fetus. When should I or anyone get their booster shot? As soon as it becomes available by the regulatory authority of the FDA and the recommendation of the CDC. Do you know when your booster shot is going to be? I don't. But when it's available, I will definitely get it. What country outside of the United States do you think has done a good job handling the pandemic? There are more than one country. Australia, New Zealand, Israel. Those are three of the countries that have done well. What's something you're most excited to do when the pandemic is over? Meet in the same room with my three daughters and have a real fun little dinner together. Last question for you. Where do you keep your vaccine card? In a folder on my desk in my office. Do you have a digital one? No, I don't. I have a plain old paper card. (laughs) Dr. Fauci, thank you so much. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Now I'm going to bring on my senior producer, Luke Vargas, just to debrief a little bit on that interview. Luke, what did we want to get out of this interview? Yeah, I think our focus was on engaging with Dr. Fauci to the greatest extent possible as a doctor. It's really common to kind of hear him talked about as if he's a politician. And of course, Dr. Fauci is probably in White House briefing rooms with the president and other politicians, but he's there to provide medical expertise, not to talk about how you're going to implement a policy. So that's why we phrase certain questions like about a possible vaccine mandate for planes or in schools as, is this something you would support? Is this good medical science as opposed to, is this going to happen? Or how would you roll this out? That's just not his domain. And neither is telling us when there's going to be a vaccine approved for kids under 12 or under five. He's made it very clear he's not a regulator. He's a doctor. So I think we were wise to treat him as that doctor. And when we did, the results were great and he really opened up. I'm curious if anything surprised you in that interview, because I'll start by saying I was not surprised at all by his strong support of new mandates for businesses and federal employees. And I also wasn't surprised to hear he would go even further than what the government has Outlined. Absolutely. And I think it's really valuable to have Dr. Fauci on the record, especially at this time. So the US government response is intensifying, and yet Dr. Fauci wants to go further, which just is a great thing to know as we evaluate whether these current mandates and public health measures actually succeed. If they don't, it's not hard to imagine that Dr. Fauci would now be vocally advocating for going further, whether it's with a vaccine mandate in schools, on planes, creating that national vaccine verification system that he seemed to support in the interview, but acknowledged it was going to be politically tricky to do. I mean, maybe those things become more mainstream. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about the airplane mandates and the school mandates, I think for a lot of Americans, especially people who've been vaccinated and have had their shots for a while, they're probably like, Hmm, this would have been a lot better back in June or July. And a lot of people 
also probably feel the opposite and are saying, it's my choice to get the vaccine, and I never thought the government would tell me what to do. I also think I was just so interested to see where this interview got picked up from more traditional outlets like The Washington Post or NBC News or Axios. But we also got a lot of pickup in traditionally more conservative outlets like Breitbart or Drudge Report. And I think this just underscores how anything that Fauci says creates a divided reaction. Totally. I mean, if you told us before the pandemic, the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases would be one of the most recognizable figures in America and a lightning rod in every political debate, I just don't think we would have believed you. And yet here we are. And on air travel in particular, I mean, there is also just something weird about getting in a plane during a pandemic that gets people fired up on both sides. Like, whether you're nervous to be on a plane in the first place and super anxious watching somebody, you know, keep their mask down for 20 minutes as they're supposedly drinking their Diet Coke, or whether you're viewing a plane as like the place you want to make a stand against health restrictions. I mean, we've all seen videos of people just losing it at flight attendants and gate agents. And so, you know, add in some comments from Dr. Fauci on that, whatever they're going to be, he's going to be hearing it from both sides. And frankly, I think that's just going to continue. I mean, he's going to be at the center of these ideological battles, whether he likes it or not. Hopefully we get the chance to, to talk to him again when he's in the middle of the next one. Yeah, I think if we get to speak to Dr. Fauci again, I really do want to ask him about criticism over booster shots. I think that that's the next conversation that's coming up. You saw this week that doctors from the FDA and the WHO kind of came out against this booster plan saying, People don't need them right now. And whether this policy was set prematurely is a big conversation. And, you know, I would be curious to hear how he thinks that booster rollout is going if we put the cart before the horse on those booster shots and whether or not that has hindered the plan to get unvaccinated people to get their shots because the public health conversation and messaging around boosters has been pretty messy. Yeah, and especially as the UN General Assembly is coming up, there's going to be so much talk about whether it's appropriate for Americans to be getting boosters when many people in the world haven't had a single shot. I think another thing we'd love to learn more about is that the U.S. healthcare system as a whole really seems to be in a precarious place. There is so much exhaustion from doctors, nurses. You're hearing about people leaving the medical profession leading to these staffing shortages. One hospital this week even announcing it didn't have enough staff to deliver babies. I would love to hear from Dr. Fauci and other top medical officials about sort of what the plan is to keep people in the medical profession at such an emotionally difficult time so that even if we can succeed in overcoming COVID-19 eventually, we don't do so at the expense of the entire healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Luke. You bet. Thanks, Alex. All right, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we are getting an eye-opening account of the tumultuous final days of the Trump administration. It allegedly included secret meetings and phone calls and a top U.S. military leader who was concerned the commander-in-chief might launch an unnecessary war. Here's the context. According to a new book, in the final days of the Trump presidency, the highest-ranking member of the U.S. Armed Forces took some pretty extraordinary steps to stop a war with China. 
General Mark Milley, who's currently serving as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, called China twice without President Trump's knowledge. The reason? He was apparently trying to reassure Chinese officials that Trump wasn't about to launch a preemptive attack. One of those calls reportedly occurred around the 2020 election, and the other followed the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Milley said he was worried Trump might go rogue. And in addition to his secret phone calls, Milley held a secret meeting with senior military officials to ensure he would be looped in if they got any military orders from the president. Trump has suggested that Milley should be tried for treason if the story was indeed true, and the whole thing has made Republicans pretty mad. Milley is supposed to testify on the Biden administration's Afghanistan withdrawal later this month, but now he could face a bunch of questions about Trump and his own decision to take American security into his own hands. So expect to keep hearing more about this one. Next up. California's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, survived an attempt to remove him from office on Tuesday, prevailing in the state's recall election. Here's what happened. Last week, we told you about California's recall, or not to recall, as voters decided whether Governor Gavin Newsom should be allowed to stay in his job for the remainder of his term. Newsom had been under fire for his handling of the pandemic, but it turns out a lot of Californians actually approved of the strict shutdowns in response to the virus. And despite this election feeling like it might have been a nail-biter, as soon as the results came in, it was clear Newsom isn't going anywhere. Now, pundits are debating what, if anything, the recall results could tell us about next year's big midterm elections. On one hand, Newsom succeeded in painting himself as the only thing preventing a Trump-like rival from taking over. But on the other hand, Democratic voters outnumber Republicans two to one in California. So maybe keeping his seat shouldn't have been such a surprise. All right, final headline. Last year, Gen Zers reached a new high. To be clear, we're talking about weed. A new study sponsored by the National Institute on Drug Abuse found that college students are drinking less alcohol, but definitely smoking more marijuana. Okay, but how high are we talking? About 44% of the study's respondents said they'd lit up at some point in 2020. Both of those are record high numbers since this data started getting tracked in the 1980s. Meanwhile, young adults are drinking less alcohol than previous years. One reason for that could be it's less fun to have a drink at home by yourself, which is where a lot of college students have been for the past year. But a bigger trend of recreational marijuana legalization, which is now a thing in 18 states, could be driving this too. Though, shocker, college administrators aren't exactly saying, hey, pass that joint. Most say marijuana is still illegal under federal law, so you're not smoking it on my campus. Everyone's got dreams. The characters on Fox's Big Leap actually do something about them. The show follows a few underdogs hoping for the chance to turn their lives around and chase their dreams. It's got romance, drama, wit, and a whole lot of inspo. Not to mention some surprising twists. Talk about must-see TV. The Big Leap premieres Monday at 9, 8 central on Fox. Don't miss it. Just over two weeks ago, a Texas law called SB8 went into effect— and it's basically a near-total ban on abortion. 
Critics of the law say it's unconstitutional, and it violates the constitutional rights set in Roe v. Wade that allows people to decide to have an abortion. But the Supreme Court didn't bite and said, until someone is actually harmed by this law going into effect, we can't get involved yet. In the days that followed, you probably heard a lot of this. The Department of Justice revealing its new plan to sue the state of Texas. Suing Texas, sue the state. Sue Texas, sue Texas. But it's been two weeks, and with each passing day, more people in Texas are likely being denied their right to receive an abortion. So what's the status on those lawsuits? We called up our favorite lawyer and legal analyst, Caroline Polisi, for a status check. I think in order to adequately address the question, we kind of have to back up and talk about the law itself, because the interesting thing is no one has actually acted on this law, SB8, meaning no one has sued another individual under the law for aiding and abetting or helping somebody obtain an abortion after the six-week mark. So ironically, I think the real teeth of the law is the chilling effect that it has had on providers and other people in Texas. And sort of the fear of being sued is really looming large on clinics everywhere. Polisi says even though there are serious questions about whether SB8 is constitutional, the threat of being sued by Texans enforcing the law is slowing down those who want to challenge it. People just don't want to be that guinea pig, so to speak, and don't want to expose themselves to paying to defend themselves in a legal proceeding, even if they know that they're going to win. Polisi says most lawsuits that succeed in taking down entire laws are carefully crafted. Lawyers need to sort through lots of possible clients directly and negatively affected by a law in order to find the perfect plaintiff. A lot of abortion litigation in this country is meticulously premeditated and manufactured on both sides to find just the right plaintiff who meets the qualifications for standing and has a novel argument to make in order to get it up to the Supreme Court or whatever court they want to get it to. And so here in the absence of that, groups that typically would come forward quickly are left to think sort of creatively about how to challenge the law. Speaking of which, you may have heard about one group planning to stand up to SB8 known as the Satanic Temple. It's a registered religion and has a history of stepping into hot debates, often involving religious rights. For instance, to counter Christian groups being allowed to offer after-school programs in public schools, the group created after-school Satan clubs that teach, quote, science and rational thinking. Now, the Satanic Temple says this new law in Texas violates their religious beliefs, arguing that their followers have a right to perform a Satanic abortion ritual beyond the approximately six weeks SB8 allows for. The temple is asking any members seeking an abortion in Texas to contact them so they can help fight SB8 directly. Other non-religious groups like Planned Parenthood or the Center for Reproductive Rights are likely looking for their own plaintiffs, though they might be taking a less flashy approach. But outside of Satanists, abortion providers, and pro-abortion groups, the federal government, via the Department of Justice, is launching the other major legal challenge against SB8. We'll let Polisi skim their strategy. Their complaint basically is asking for a declaration that the entirety of the law is unconstitutional. So they're saying essentially that federal law prevents this abortion statute, SB 8, under the Supremacy Clause of the 14th Amendment. Okay, I'm going to dust off my copy of the Constitution for a second. The Supremacy Clause says that when there are conflicts between state law and federal law, 
what the feds say is the law of the land. Just for an example, people serving in the military, you know, there's a federal requirement to provide abortion services if they're subject to rape or incest. But here's where things get tricky. If those providers can then be sued under SB8, well, that's a problem. So the argument is that the law is putting federal employees at risk of being sued in Texas under this Texas law, and that the federal government therefore has to protect them, and that the state of Texas is actually violating the supremacy clause of the 14th Amendment. This week, the Department of Justice asked a federal judge in Texas to temporarily stop the enforcement of SB 8. The Fed said, allowing Texas to dodge its constitutional obligation to provide safe abortions would encourage other states to do the same. So let's stop this before things get out of hand. The judge assigned to that case was appointed by former President Barack Obama, though it's unclear when we might get a ruling. So stay tuned. In the meantime, some businesses have sprung into action. Lyft and Uber say they'll pay drivers legal fees if they're sued under this new law. And the dating app company Bumble has set up a fund for people affected by the Texas abortion ban. So while this may take a while to play out in court, corporate America seems to be making some moves. Speaking of corporate America, in case you missed it, Facebook is apparently getting into fashion. The design is just so sleek and so clearly cool. That's Joanna Stern. She's the senior personal technology columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And recently, she took Facebook's latest wearable product for a spin. You want to call them Facebook glasses, but they don't actually say Facebook on them, which is really interesting. These are made in partnership with Ray-Ban and Facebook. And they look like regular Wayfarer Ray-Ban sunglasses. But here's the catch. What may look like a pair of classic sunglasses are actually a bit more Spy Kids or Mission Impossible than they appear. The crazy part about these is they have two cameras embedded into the sort of the sides right next to the lenses. And really, other than that, you would not know that there was any technology in these. There is a teeny tiny recording light that when you press a button on the top of the glasses to start recording, that light starts to turn on. It was kind of fun, but also creepy to see people react when they first saw that there was a camera where I pointed it out to them. And if I hadn't pointed it out to them, they said they really wouldn't have known that there were cameras and that they were being recorded. To be fair, Facebook has tried to address privacy concerns about these glasses. It's limiting videos to 30 seconds and building in a power switch for turning the camera and mic off. Still, if you own regular sunglasses and never thought you'd need a camera in them, who exactly is Facebook targeting with this new product launch? I do think that the majority of people will use it in the way that they want it, which is fun videos of you doing things in your day. They're sort of looking at the creators, those who make videos for Instagram stories and make things for Instagram reels. And it provides this first person point of view video that's a little bit more intimate, I would say, than holding up a smartphone. And that's really fun. And that's what Instagram and Facebook is intending and and Ray-Ban is intending here, right? But of course, like any technology and anything we've learned over the last decade about our technology is it can be used for bad too. And so where are the bad actors and what might they do with this? And even if you aren't seeing these glasses everywhere you go, 
there's still something about them that feels kind of weird. And it doesn't help that Facebook's been in the news for some not-so-great things lately. This week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Facebook has known about Instagram's harmful effects on teen girls for years. Since 2019, it's been researching how the social media platform impacts teens' anxiety, depression, and body image. That research was reportedly reviewed by top Facebook execs, but the company has allegedly been downplaying its own negative findings. So that's not good. But then there was another report from the journal that alleged Facebook's known its algorithm favors harmful and unhealthy content. But apparently, its leadership, including CEO Mark Zuckerberg, have reportedly resisted making any changes to make the platform a healthier place to consume content. People who cover tech, including Stern, have been watching for years as the narrative of Facebook being the tech world's villain took shape, from buying its competitors to spreading misinformation to putting user privacy at risk. But we wanted to know, what about any of this new reporting stood out? My reaction is really more of a confirmation that Facebook has known that many of its products and its algorithms and the way its systems are designed are not all good for the world. And that what they say publicly about those things is not necessarily the same as what they know internally. And that's really big, been the big theme of this package that we've been posting this week. And even though these reports cover Facebook's major social platforms, those concerns also relate to Facebook's other launches, including these glasses. It did make me think back to my review from last week because it made me really feel confident in what I said, which is it's not yet time to give a company like Facebook the trust in technology like this with cameras that can be recording all the time or can be recording with people not knowing. When there might be some better technology to offer, then maybe we will say the trade-off is worth it, that the privacy trade-off is worth it. But right now, I do not think there is any trade-off that's worth it. No matter what the technology is that Facebook gives us, there are still so many trust issues and big questions about how things are being done by Facebook that I think we have to have a lot of questions before we step into that future with Facebook. If this story has you going, what the F, Facebook? We'll leave a link to the journal's reporting and Stern's column in our show notes. If you've ever found yourself in the great outdoors, maybe even by accident, and realized, hey, I should do this more often, you're not alone. When I used to walk my dog, if we would get to a moving body of water, he would want to sit by the water and his eyes would just close. And I would be like, Kofi, you going to sleep. And if he would like look at me like I'm trying to meditate. Like it was like this really nice soothing. And I was like, well, let me sit down here with you. That's Dr. Jennifer D. Roberts, an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. She also founded a research lab that looks at the health benefits of getting outside. I'm a nature junkie. I love being outside. I always liked the idea of I could go outside and just decompress. And it wasn't until I started to look at some of the research saying that it reduces the risk of hypertension, it reduces anxiety, like actual empirical evidence showing this. I wasn't surprised, but it was kind of nice to see like the empirical evidence based on what I've always just felt. It turns out nature is good for us. So good, in fact, that some medical professionals are beginning to prescribe it. That trend has accelerated since the start of the pandemic, as more and more doctors have been writing nature prescriptions. 
literally a medical reason to go spend time outdoors. Whether that's your local park at the end of a busy workday or making a trip of it and going camping or hiking. In recent years, medical studies have shown that people who've gone off and spent time in nature experienced lessening symptoms of depression and anxiety. Plus, time in nature can also help improve your overall mood. And you don't need to be like Reese Witherspoon and Wild to reap the rewards of nature. Just being around green spaces or bodies of water actually has its own medical benefits. It does boost your immune response. There's also been a reduction in actual measurements of stress hormones. Sometimes people who live in places where there's a lot of tree canopy, there's been research showing how that can be beneficial. And so I think we're starting to uncover more and more of this research because people are starting to realize the benefits of nature all the way from childhood up. If you're wondering, why am I only hearing about nature prescriptions now if they're so great? Dr. Robert says doctor training involves learning what medications might help with certain conditions, meaning serious studies of more holistic approaches are pretty recent. It wasn't really till recently that a lot of physicians start to really push physical activity because a lot of times their training is these medicinal therapies. We are very much a culture of we give pills, we give these medicinal prescriptions. But I think saying, how can we supplement this? Because so much is going on, I think people are starting to say, you know what, these nature prescriptions could also be not necessarily an alternative, but something that can supplement these already medicinal therapies to help with these levels of depression and anxiety. While the nature prescriptions movement has been around for years, it's taking off now. One group, ParkRx America, has a website that helps health practitioners identify the right types of outdoor spaces to send their patients. Then it lets them track whether those patients filled their prescriptions by actually getting out into nature. The even better news about nature prescriptions, according to Dr. Roberts, is that most medical professionals will have zero reservations about writing one. I think the more patients you have going in saying, hey, doc, I heard about these nature prescriptions. How can I get one? Some doctors will start to think, oh, wait a minute. Is there training I need to get? Like, what's going on? They may actually start to think, Oh, let me start writing then. But if you don't want to go to your GP's office just for them to tell you to go outside, you can also do it yourself by marking time on your calendar a few times a week to head out. Dr. Robert says that time to yourself, even if it's just a short walk outside after work, is something we can all fit into our routines. People say, well, I can't get to the Grand Canyon or I don't have a forest near me. I like to tell people that you don't have to hit all five cylinders of your senses to get that therapeutic benefit of nature. It could be actually just listening to a nature sound. These don't have to be these like grandiose type outings. These are just places that are close by. Absorbing some of the sounds and just the peace of nature is all you need. And you don't need a large dose could be maybe like 15 minutes or even sometimes five minutes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. And thanks for sticking around till the end. Since you're here, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find out about us and hopefully leaves them just as smart as you. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had help this week from Sajin Coriolis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. 
And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts.